Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And today's episode is Why? Where we'll discuss challenges in the diagnosis and management of esophageal intubation and anaesthetic crises in general. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Late last year, the Coroner's Court of New South Wales released the findings from an inquest into the death of a 19-month-old child during the provision of anaesthesia for minor emergency surgery. The cause of death in this instance was found to be an unrecognised esophageal intubation resulting in desaturation, clinical deterioration and patient demise. The esophageal intubation was found during post-mortem examination. As well as addressing factors contributing to the airway event, the inquest identified areas for improvement within the health service involved. We'll eventually discuss what we can learn from this case at the end of this episode, but we're not going to go into too many specifics. The full inquest report can be found on the New South Wales Coronial Inquest Findings website, and we've provided a link to the site in our episode description. This case is a tragedy for all of the people involved, so discretion and respect for the identities and privacy for everyone mentioned within the report is an absolute must. And before you download the report, please be aware that both Kate and I found it really difficult to read because it's a situation that's just so relatable. Mm, That's very true. Now, it's hard to get an idea of the incidence of esophageal intubations, as particularly in the event of early detection and correction with no adverse event or complications, there is no reporting of data like this. We know, however, that an esophageal intubation is more likely when managing a difficult airway and specifically when difficult laryngoscopy is encountered. Much of our information about esophageal intubations comes from the fourth national audit project of the Royal College of Anaesthetists and the Difficult Airway Society, also known as the NAP4. For those unfamiliar with the NAP4, it's an audit of airway events related to anaesthesia and to airway management within the emergency department and ICU. Data was collected over a 12-month period from September 2008 until August 2009, and during this time, there were 184 reports of airway complications, in which 133 occurred during the course of anaesthetic management, 36 occurred in intensive care, and 15 within the emergency department. Within this audit, there were three cases of unrecognised esophageal intubation during the provision of anaesthesia, in which one case led to death and one led to brain damage. In the case of the patient that made a full recovery, an unrecognised esophageal intubation was mistaken as anaphylaxis in a healthy patient having major elective surgery. This error in diagnosis was corrected rapidly by a senior anaesthetist who attended to help. In the second case, a healthy patient having minor surgery developed hypoxia in the event of a poorly functioning supraglottic airway, and this necessitated intubation when the patient was peri-arrest. Intubation and ventilation were both difficult, with a flat capnograph trace noted during the prolonged cardiac arrest. 
The patient died after an hour of CPR and the esophageal intubation was discovered at autopsy. The third case was a middle-aged patient having elective minor surgery. The patient had a hypoxic cardiac arrest after impossible face mask ventilation encountered on induction. Tracheal intubation was difficult and the esophageal intubation only diagnosed when the capnography trace remained flat after cardiac output was restored. This patient sustained brain damage. In the case where cardiac arrest occurred, the flat capnography trace was misinterpreted as being a result of the cardiac arrest. It's also worth mentioning that two cases of severe bronchospasm reported during the NAPFOR also presented very similarly with hypoxia, poor ventilation and flat capnography. In both of these cases, the tube was removed to exclude esophageal intubation and in one case this was done three times. The point that absolute bronchospasm and esophageal intubation may be difficult to distinguish is worth remembering. Esophageal intubation occurred in four of the 36 reported airway events within the ICU and in two of the 15 reports from the emergency department. In total, there were six cases of esophageal intubation that led to five deaths. All of these intubations were performed by clinicians with very limited airway experience and capnography was not used in five of the six cases. One of the two reported emergency department cases was in an infant. During cardiac arrest, clinicians didn't realise that the flat capnography trace indicated incorrect endotracheal tube placement. This was the single case in which capnography had been used. Now, one of the most important conclusions from the NAP4 was that either omission of use of capnography or the incorrect interpretation of the capnography trace led to undiagnosed esophageal intubations. When discussing this, the NAP4 authors also address findings related to unrecognised esophageal intubations as reported from the American Society of Anesthesiologists Closed Claims Project, or ASACCP. They explain that delays in the diagnosis of more than five minutes were almost universal. Auscultation routinely gave false positives, cyanosis was often absent, and it was cardiovascular disturbance or collapse that alerted clinicians to the esophageal intubation in over 80% of cases. Yeah, that's fascinating points to Mm. note for practice points. Absolutely. Earlier this year, the journal Anesthesia published an editorial addressing lessons learned from a coroner's case in the UK in which a healthy adult patient died as a result of an unrecognised esophageal intubation during anesthesia for an emergency appendicectomy. In this case, a healthy middle-aged patient who was clinically stable developed severe hypoxia on induction, which was misdiagnosed as anaphylaxis. Though there were numerous anaesthetists in attendance as the crisis developed and capnography had been correctly applied prior to induction, there was a delay in diagnosing the esophageal intubation. By the time the trachea had been successfully intubated, the patient had sustained a hypoxic brain injury resulting in eventual death. The authors had some interesting insights and suggestions that we thought were timely to address given our own recent case in Australia. From here on, everything we discuss is from this article, and it's worth stating that this discussion doesn't necessarily apply to the New South Wales coroner's case. Mm, That's right. Now, it's well established that clinical signs typically used to assess the correct positioning of an endotracheal tube can be ambiguous in the event of an esophageal intubation, and that the gold standard for determining correct tube placement is with capnography and the appearance of a normal end tidal carbon dioxide waveform. In their analysis of coronial cases of esophageal intubation within the United Kingdom, the authors found that these cases generally fell into three broad categories for the fundamental reason behind an unrecognised esophageal intubation. These reasons were, the first, the capnogram is never applied. The second, a false assumption that a flat CO2 trace is expected during cardiopulmonary resuscitation. 
and the third, that there is failure to check the monitor for a CO2 waveform or to perform clinical checks to determine tracheal tube placement. Now, before we go on, it's worth stating for the record that the assumption that a flat CO2 trace during CPR is normal is incorrect. CO2 traces can be elicited from the endotracheal intubation in cadavers, and indeed, the value achieved in the end tidal CO2 trace during CPR is an indicator of perfusion and successful resuscitation. Yeah, very important to remember. The first identified contributor to the misdiagnosis of esophageal intubations by the authors was human factors, and there are many at play in this UK-based case. Arousal is linked to performance in a bell-shaped relationship in which performance declines with both too much arousal, as seen with stress, and too little arousal. In the case of the male patient with appendicitis, it is posited that arousal levels were low in the lack of clinical complexity. As well as this, cognitive biases may be present. Confirmation bias may have been a factor in this case. The authors offered a potential explanation for the misdiagnosis of the esophageal intubation as anaphylaxis in that it may have resulted from staff only taking into account the information supportive of the diagnosis of anaphylaxis rather than all of the clinical information present. Anchoring bias, in which the first diagnosis of anaphylaxis became the reference point for subsequent considerations as to the cause of the patient's condition, was also discussed as a potential contributor. Yeah, so this is interesting. Um, I can I can understand how easy it is to focus on one particular differential, but at the same time, some of the stuff I did in my fellowship in mm. um, healthcare improvement would suggest that we should be looking at wider systems factors rather than blaming everything on human factors. Yeah. And in fact, what we understand as being human factors it was as taught in anaesthesia is not actually human factors as yeah. it actually is in the literature. So yeah. this is an interesting point, but I think it's one that we will just kind of leave, you know, hanging on the side. I'm just not convinced that blaming individuals or their cognitive processes is necessarily very productive in these cases. No, unless, of course, you take steps to improve issues with arousal or bias in terms of the training and things like that. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I think it's multifactorial, right? So, yeah, I I think it's interesting. Mm. Absolutely. So, the next contributor was the presence of leadership, staff hierarchies and communication in a crisis. In this case, the consultant anaesthetist first responding to assist the primary consultant initially questioned whether the endotracheal tube was cited correctly, but did not press the point out of deference to the inducing consultant. Now, I find this interesting for a few reasons, but mainly because I've been in several situations where I've been the first responder to a crisis where the case belongs, for want of a better way of saying it, to a more senior anaesthetic consultant. And sometimes you feel comfortable and sometimes you don't Mm. questioning the diagnosis at the cause of the crisis or management choices where I may not have agreed. I have to say I'm very fortunate with my colleagues, particularly when stressed, a lot of people will defer and try to offload that cognitive load onto someone else coming in or get a fresh pair of eyes. And Mm. I think that's um, certainly my strategy when I ask for help Mm. is to keep doing the manual tasks and ask someone else to put their brain on for me. So, Yeah, it's interesting just thinking about the situations that I've been, I have been in situations like that where as a first responder, I have gone into a room and have been told certain facts by the anaesthetist that's in control mm-hmm. of the case. And particularly if they're more senior, I do tend to just, you know, take it as gospel for want of a better way of saying it in terms of how the case is mm-hmm. and go from there. And that's definitely a fault on my behalf because I think it's important to sometimes question what's going on in front of you particularly if it doesn't fit clinically it's Mm. it's fascinating yeah now the authors admit that having titles within a healthcare setting can be a double-edged sword 
On the one hand, they can rapidly communicate to other staff an individual's level of training and likely skill set, but on the other hand, it can mean there is a hesitance of staff to question or challenge decisions when they perceive themselves as lower down the food chain. It's, I suppose it's exactly what I've just said, yeah. Mm. As well as this, ambiguous titles can further muddy the waters as they aren't informative of an individual's level of training or skill set. And in a perfect world, these titles should be changed or standardised to illustrate more clearly defined roles. That said, though, improving titles won't eliminate a staff hierarchy, but it may clarify the skills that staff are capable of. The third contributor was the manner in which staff call for help and the ways that helpers can speak up. Now, specifically in this case, the coroner addressed the primary anaesthetist's calm manner and how that may have conveyed certainty about the misdiagnosis of anaphylaxis and the subsequent limitation of team thinking to include other differential diagnoses. Ultimately, there are two reasons that we call for help in a crisis. The first is to recruit additional hands in theatre, and an example of this is for the management of a major hemorrhage. The second is because the primary consultant has exhausted their diagnostic or physical ability and needs a fresh brain and a set of eyes to offer an unbiased analysis and a fresher perspective. The authors recommend that staff calling for help clearly state whether the diagnosis is clear and that specific assistance by other means is needed, or whether there is a diagnostic or management issue. In either instance, continued deterioration should cue those involved to reconsider a diagnosis in order to avoid a fixation error. Mm. Ensuring there exists an environment in which other staff can offer recommendations or express concerns is part of being a good leader and helps avoid biases. Graded assertiveness tools like CUS, which stands for stating concern, stating you're uncomfortable, questioning safety, and finally asking that something stop, or PACE, which stands for sequentially probe, alert, challenge, and escalate, are taught with the intent of making it easier for junior staff to step in where there is the perception of questionable decision-making from senior staff. Staffing issues form the fourth contributor to the poor diagnosis and management of esophageal intubations, specifically in situations where trainees are not immediately supervised or unaware of which consultant is supervising them. So now we're getting more into the systems factors that I think are important. For trainees, knowing who to call for help and how to contact them is of the utmost importance. The N plus one staffing model in which each theatre complex has a designated spare or floating anaesthetist certainly helps in the event of a direct supervisor that is not contactable. But these anaesthetists should be of sufficient seniority as to be able to assist with an appropriate skill set, as well as to be able to help in overcoming issues with hierarchical barriers. The fifth contributor surrounds which staff member should intubate a patient. Specifically, the authors state that there is an ethical obligation of the anaesthetist to inform patients of any part of their care that is not routine, and this includes consent for the intubator if it's not an anaesthetist. This may be for medical students, anaesthetic assistants, or other non-anaesthetic staff performing the intubation. Specifically, allowing the sole anaesthetic assistant to attempt intubation during a rapid sequence induction with cricoid pressure may raise safety concerns as switching operators in the event of airway difficulty would require the release of cricoid pressure, which, without going into too many reasons about the clinical utility of cricoid pressure, may add further potential risk. Yeah, that's an interesting one about um, consent. We'll have to have a think about that. Yeah, Mm. yeah. And lastly, the authors cite not using video laryngoscopy as standard practice as a contributor to undiagnosed esophageal intubations. There is a view out there that video laryngoscopes should be used routinely rather than just for predicted difficult airways. The authors state that as video laryngoscopes increase the success rate of tracheal intubation, they subsequently reduce the risk of esophageal intubation and as an extension to this, unrecognised esophageal intubation. 
They also potentially provide a better view of the glottis to not only the anaesthetist, but to the assistant, which can allow for better assistance with laryngeal manipulation as they can see the screen too, and to also verify tracheal tube placement. So pausing here for a moment, what do you think about the suggested contributors to having an unrecognised difficult airway? So it's interesting. And look, without having read the coroner's report for the patient in the UK with appendicitis, I can't really comment on whether these recommendations really relate to that specific case. But that said, I think there is a validity to all of the identified potential contributors. And I suppose like we've discussed previously, I have experienced some of these firsthand and understand how particularly in combination they can have a massive impact on clinical outcomes, particularly where a diagnosis like esophageal intubation isn't necessarily clear or realised or even appreciated by those involved. How about you? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the first few that look into what we would call human factors and now Mm. I have a bit of a different understanding of what human factors actually is, Mm. I'm... Yeah, as you point out, I think there are things we can all learn as individual practitioners and the concept of attention and cognitive biases. I think it's interesting, Mm. but I really think, you know, where it, yeah, the interesting thing is the system factors. And you sort of wonder if we spoke to someone in another industry and we said, well, we've got this thing that we can use to put a tube down. Mm. It's a standard blade. We get a great view sometimes, but mm. it does the job most of the time. But we have this other thing that's freely available and increases our chance of success, reduces the risk of trauma, yeah. reduces the risk of complications. I, I just think it's interesting. It's kind of, yeah. to me, it's analogous for using ultrasounds for central lines. You yeah. know, at some point, are we just going to end up yeah. using video laryngoscopes for everyone? Yeah. And I think if you actually legitimately had that conversation with an outsider, yeah. And and particularly yeah. presented it like that, mm. you can almost imagine them going, "Well, why on earth would yeah. you not use the better one?" Like yeah. that seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, and look, you know, we have resource constraints in, yeah, in health, like we do in every industry. Anyway, I just I find it very interesting to think about those wider factors. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, um, now, after all of this, the authors do offer three main approaches to prevent unrecognised esophageal intubations. The first is ongoing education and training to help address the issues of cognitive biases, hierarchy and communication, specifically combining reading and discussion with simulation and workshops to promote a deeper understanding of the issue of esophageal intubation and its diagnosis. The individual also has a responsibility to maintain currency in practice and fulfil their CPD requirements. And at this point, we should reinforce that clinical checks to confirm the location of an ETT within the trachea include misting of the endotracheal tube, bilateral breath sounds on auscultation and bilateral chest movement. These signs do not robustly confirm correct tube placement, but their absence should heighten concern and should prompt a check in capnography. And remember, no trace equals wrong place. Mm, I like that. That's punchy. Approach number two is the practice of airway rituals, specifically deconstructing a task into separate steps that are performed in sequence and without shortcuts. For airway management, routinely using the clinical indicators for endotracheal tube placement as well as checking capnography to confirm your tube placement. Even something simple like stating out loud, capnography confirmed after you've intubated the patient so that everyone knows that you've successfully ventilated them. Yeah, that's, that's just a quick aside. That's actually interesting because um, I had a colleague that left a wire in a central line. So ever since then, I actually say like wire removed out yeah. loud. It just helps me remember. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It, it triggers that sort mm. of memory. And when it becomes second nature, mm. you, you don't even have to think about it to remind yourself. Absolutely. And finally, and this is the more into real human factors, is engineering solutions. Mm. And by this, the authors mean correcting issues with monitoring and default settings within equipment with the intent of hopefully assisting in reducing the incidence of esophageal intubation. In the case of the adult male patient with appendicitis, the hospital's in-theatre monitoring did not routinely default to showing a capnography trace and instead defaulted to a pressure trace. 
In the course of the inquest, it was discovered that at least one attending doctor misinterpreted this as a CO2 trace. Mm. It is believed that the alarm for a flat CO2 trace may have sounded during the case, but in the absence of context from a CO2 trace, this would have been likely difficult to interpret. Mm. And to this, a likely presence of many alarms going off on the monitors in the anaesthetic machine. And suddenly you're dealing with alarm fatigue as well. Mm, that's so true. The authors suggest a potential direction for the future may be an unrecognised esophageal intubation smart alarm. Perhaps an alarm linked to both capnography and airway pressures, in which an alert is sounded in the absence of one of the two cyclical traces from both inputs. So, for example, the alarm should in theory sound if the machine detects the cyclical airway pressure from ventilation but a flat carbon dioxide trace, but it wouldn't sound when either both are present, like in successful ventilation, or when both are absent. Now, since the pattern seen in esophageal intubation would be similar to face mask ventilation with a temporary obstructed airway, a delay of 30 seconds before an alarm sounds could prevent false alarms during induction before intubation has been performed. And there may also be a verbal component to the alarm where the machine tells you to consider an esophageal intubation. All in all, it's something interesting to consider. Yeah, I think that is interesting because it, mm. it plays into true human factors, which is humans interacting with their environment and systems around them. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think it'd be fascinating to see yeah, that it Yeah, develops. we'll have to watch this space. Now, what does all of this ultimately mean for us and what can we learn from the coronial inquest after the case in Australia? Again, keep in mind we're not criticising any of the parties involved, but trying to critically look at what happened to help us improve our own practice and hopefully prevent events like this in the future. Let's start by reiterating that visualising the endotracheal tube going through the cords is not the gold standard for ensuring correct endotracheal tube placement. Confirmation of correct endotracheal tube placement with capnography is considered the gold standard. We know that clinical signs for confirmation of ETT placement can be ambiguous, but in the absence of consistent capnography, they should be elicited to assist in determining the placement of the endotracheal tube. As well as this, it's important to try to incorporate signs from the entire clinical picture when trying to determine the cause of an airway issue. In this case, the coroner concluded that the significance of a persistent air leak despite endotracheal cuff inflation, coarse sounds in the upper airway, the absence of persistent entidal CO2 waveform and distension of the patient's stomach were not fully realised. This clinical picture was present despite there being visualisation of the endotracheal tube going through the vocal cords, chest rise and fall, and bilateral breath sounds after intubation. Now, at this point, it's important to acknowledge, and we've stated this before, that severe bronchospasm can be very difficult to distinguish from an esophageal intubation, and that in both the NAPFOR and the recent editorial article, anaphylaxis was deemed the cause for the clinical picture. In the case in Australia, bronchospasm in the setting of anaphylaxis was also thought to be the cause of the patient's clinical picture. This is a really important point for us all to remember moving forward. It's a good reminder for future practice that a poor response to therapy or continued deterioration should prompt other diagnoses to be considered. Another significant recommendation that resulted from the inquest was for the development of hospital-specific guidelines regarding the provision of anaesthetic care for paediatric patients. In this case, the only guiding document was ANSCA's PG29, Guideline for the Provision of Anesthesia Care to Children. Now, we won't discuss the contents of this document here, but it's worth noting that PS29 not only provides guidance for the anaesthetic care of children, but also encourages hospitals and health services to establish their own guidelines. The last significant recommendation from the inquest is that the hospital should take steps to establish and support ongoing training of clinicians. 
This was also a recommendation of the editorial authors for their specific case of unrecognised esophageal intubation. This recommendation is easy to understand. Now, as we've stated previously, our intent with this episode was to draw insight from a truly devastating anaesthetic complication and to learn from the experiences of our peers. At no point has our intent been to criticise those involved with any of the cases we've discussed, but to analyse and implement strategies that will hopefully act to improve our understanding and awareness of esophageal intubations and to help us manage them in the future. Yeah, well said, Kate. Mm. So, um... Before we sign off, what have you learned this week in anaesthesia? Well, I had a little revision, um, forced in theatre revision about some stuff that I learned in my part one exam that I had successfully forgotten. So the situation I was in was I was doing anaesthesia uh, and I had a medical student that was sort of tapped in with me and we were talking about vancomycin. I, I think for some reason I had to give vancomycin to the patient I was taking care of. And I said to the medical student, now, part of the reason, you know, well, we started talking about, let me take a step back. We started talking about the red man syndrome. And I mm. said to my medical student, now, the red man syndrome is related to the speed with which vanco- vancomycin is administered. And she responded with, really? I thought it was anaphylaxis. At which point, and this is giving you a little window into my psyche. The first thing I thought was, crap, I'm teaching people the wrong thing. <laughs> so I went and looked it up. And actually, we were kind of both right. So... The thing with the red man syndrome is that it is directly related to the speed of the infusion of the vancomycin mm. specifically for the first dose and it's anaphylactoid. So yeah, okay. the the mechanism is that you get widespread widespread histamine release mm. from mast cells mm. and basophils but it doesn't actually involve the complement system or it's not IgE mediated. Mm. So in a way we were kind of both right. Mm. Specifically it is related more specifically it is related to the first dose of vancomycin. Apparently it's not as big a deal with sub subsequent doses of vancomycin. The other thing I also learned is that it's not just seen in vancomycin. So there are other drugs where you can see this, can see this, sorry. And some of these include things like ciprofloxacin, amphotericin B, rifampicin and ticoplanin. Mm. So I can actually, I will include a link to the journal article that I (laughs) very rapidly read in theatre to to establish what on earth I was teaching this poor medical student. So I'll link that in the episode notes if anyone's particularly keen about the red man syndrome. The article is actually titled, uh, I think, Red Man Syndrome. Yeah, okay. Sounds good. So, Kate, what have you learned this week in anaesthesia? Well, I mean, I have some physiological factors that might be contributing to this at the moment. However, I have learned, I've never worn a smartwatch or a Fitbit or anything before and mm. I recently acquired a Fitbit and I've learned that when I have a crisis I enter the fat burning zone with my heart rate. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to say about so, it. <laughs> interestingly enough actually it was a robotic case where um, it's semi-related mm. to esophageal intubation but when the patient went head down I, the tube just went down the right main bronchus I okay. think um, and uh, yes but she didn't handle one lung very well and got oh, very gosh. hypoxic quite quickly uh, and I did actually hit the emergency buzzer, which I rarely do. But when I look back at my Fitbit data, I was like, <laughs> oh, great. I also got a workout, even though I actually felt quite calm. And I was yeah. you know, presenting as very, very calm and I had mm. really good help and we resolved it nice and quickly. The patient mm. was fine. But it was funny looking back on the Fitbit chart. <laughs> it's fascinating though, happened. isn't it? Because often, I, and I think a lot of us can attest to this, that when you're in an emergency, often we are externally very calm mm. and we're screaming on the inside. Mm. But you just have this facade of calm. I've I've had situations where similar sort of thing where I've had a complication and, mm. you know, the cavalry have come in to help. And I've had people saying, wow, you're so relaxed. It's like, Really? I thought I was about to lose my brain, but well, next time show them your Fitbit yeah, data. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Sorry, it was quite funny. 
It's been a heavy but valuable conversation this week on Deep Breaths. Don't forget to claim CPD for listening to this episode if you're a consultant or fellow. As always, if you have any questions, comments or suggestions, or you just want to say hi, you can email us on deepbreathspod at gmail.com. You can find us on most podcast platforms and following us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify makes finding new episodes easier. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.